Why is Jesus crucified? That is the question I want to ask this morning. As we hear our gospel readings, we might feel the impulse to play the blame game, simply blame Pontius Pilate. It was his fault. He's the reason Jesus was crucified. Or to blame the Jewish leadership, or even to blame the crowd. But then we would be playing the same game of shifting responsibility that they all are. The Jewish leadership says they can't be the ones to kill Jesus because it's the time of the Passover, and they don't want to compromise their ritual purity. It would defile them to kill. So they turn to the Romans to do their dirty work. And then Pilate tries to wash his hands of this whole thing, refusing to accept any blame for the shedding of innocent blood. There's something remarkably similar here to the way that Adam and Eve talk with God after they've eaten from the forbidden fruit. Adam says, it was the woman. And then Eve says, it was the serpent. In light of all that, there's something almost refreshing about the way that the whole people respond after Pilate washes his hands. They say, his blood be on us and on our children. At least they accept responsibility. As we reflect on the question of why Jesus was crucified, I would encourage us to follow suit, not to shift blame for who's at fault, but to accept responsibility. We are part of the same world that killed Jesus. I would invite us to consider that one possible answer to Pilate's question, what is truth, is the cross itself. That the cross is the place where the truth about our world is told. God entered human history, our history, and the cross is what we did to him. The cross should cause us to question, to become aware of, and to to challenge the aspects of our lives and of our world that sent Jesus to the cross. In other words, the cross reveals the truth of our sin, at the same time that it saves us from our sin. We might say that in order to save us from our sin, the cross had to fully expose it, to fully draw out the sin of the world so that out in the open it could be dealt with. That's the way the Apostle Paul seems to interpret the cross in his letter to the Colossians. He writes that through the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them subjected them to public disgrace, triumphing over them in the cross. Crucifixion is how the Romans made public examples of the people they despised the most, slaves or those who commit treason, exposing them to this public shame, this humiliation. But Paul is saying that in the cross of Jesus, it went the other way. The cross put on display a judgment against the powers that put Jesus there that by the cross the rulers were disarmed and disgraced. Paul is saying that their power was shown up for what it was. The truth was told about it, and it was exposed as empty, as impotent. And therefore the crucified, the crucified one, was shown to be the king of kings and the lord of lords, not Pilate and not Caesar. If this is true, that the cross tells us the truth about our world, drawing out our sin in order to triumph over it, then we have to pay close attention to the way that sin works in these stories. 
so that we can stand with the crucified against these powers that put him there. As the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that dead to sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus bore the sin that was done to him in order to bring our sin to death so that we also might be dead to sin and live to righteousness, so that we might follow his example and share in his righteous life as his disciples. All right, so our question, why is Jesus crucified? Here's what I'm proposing, that it was our sin, tangible human sin, that killed him. And the way I want to look at this is by turning our attention to the trial before Pontius Pilate, where Jesus is actually sentenced to be crucified. Let's look at the players in the story. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the elders, the crowd, and Pontius Pilate himself. What drives their actions? As we look for the truth that the cross tells us about our world, we'll see not only the sin that Jesus exposed and that he bore in himself on the cross, but also something true about the human nature we all share. And therefore, as we look at this story, we'll be seeing the same temptations we still face in our world today. So let's begin with ourselves, the religious folks, the chief priests, and the elders of the people. These are the religious and political leaders of the Jewish people. They have their own police force. They have apprehended Jesus. They've even had their own private trial of Jesus before the high priest Caiaphas. And now they're bringing him before Pilate to have him executed. So how was Jesus bearing human sin through the actions of these leaders? How did human sin act to bring about his death on the cross? Well, gosh, let's count off all the bad behavior. We can do this in terms of the Ten Commandments. Of course, there's the command against murder. That's how all this turns out. Let's not forget the command against bearing false witness. And even Pilate seems to be able to see through all the accusations. We also hear that Pilate was able to see that this was out of jealousy, that Jesus was handed over to be crucified in terms of the Ten Commandments. That's number 10 against coveting. And in all of this, they're acting in the name of faith. Textbook case of taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not just about those words you're not supposed to say. It's about invoking God's name in an unholy cause. I would say that runs through all their behavior in the form of what we call religious hypocrisy. I mentioned that according to the gospel writers, the Jewish leaders didn't kill Jesus themselves because it was the Passover and they wanted to maintain ritually, ritual purity. They didn't want to defile themselves with killing. So this is apparently how you get to have your cake and eat it too during the season of Lent or chocolate as the case may be. You get the Romans to, to eat it for you. According to John, these deeply religious leaders are so committed to their piety that they don't even enter Pilate's headquarters when they bring Jesus for the trial because out of fear of entering a Gentile space, they wanted to maintain their purity. Entering that space would make them unclean. They are unswerving in their commitment to their purity of faith. And even in this show of piety, they will say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That statement is startlingly hypocritical for 
political reasons, we'll start there, coming from the leadership of an occupied and oppressed people they're supposed to be representing, this feels like complete betrayal, complete concession. But it's also startling for religious reasons. Because in the imagination of the Old Testament, the Lord God is king over all creation. Not to mention that in the Roman imagination, in Roman government and Roman society, Caesar is himself a kind of God. Which is to say, when you say we have no king but Caesar, you're committing idolatry. Which is breaking that first commandment against having no other gods. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Human sin drove him there. Count him off. Working through the worst forms of religious hypocrisy, religious violence, and double dealing. Put simply, this is what happens when human beings commit the idolatry of worshiping human power, of having no other king but Caesar. Now, worshiping power can be really tempting to people of faith because it offers the illusion of certainty, and we struggle with that. Power offers the promise of a way to force our vision of faith on the world to make sure that it happens. And so we find people in the name of purity and in the name of faith doing things their faith forbids. And they do this because they're worshiping power. They're trying to preserve the power they have and gain the power they don't. I'm reminded of the first temptation of Jesus there in the wilderness when the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, saying, all these I will give you if you but bow down and worship me. To this, Jesus replies, modeling for us how to reply when we too are faced with that temptation. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. People of faith, let us not be deceived. Let us not sell our souls to gain power in this world. For what will it profit a man, Jesus asks, if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? So we've got the chief priests and the elders. Closely related to them in bringing Jesus before Pilate is the crowd, the generic crowd. They are a group that can be persuaded to act with a single voice. They do a lot of shouting a lot of insistent shouting. They have a thirst for blood, and they are on their way to a full-on riot. They're instrumental for the plan of the chief priests and elders in calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. The crowd exemplifies the behavior of mob mentality, another feature of our human capacity to sin, where we cease to be individuals who can think for ourselves, and we dissolve instead into a thoughtless mass used as a tool in someone else's designs. It's in dissolving into a mob that we become capable of doing things we never would have done on our own. I have memories of things I did in college that I probably shouldn't talk about from the pulpit. <laughs> but they're things that I did because I was with the right group of people. I probably wouldn't have thought of doing these things if I were alone. I mean, when you talk about peer pressure, but it's not just a matter of one innocent person being pressured to do something by that malicious mob of their peers. It's that we have, when we get together, we have a way of melting into each other and becoming this amorphous blob where our action together is bigger than any single 
one of us. And I mean, by the time we're taking out the walls from between the bathroom stalls, we don't even know whose idea it was. We don't remember where we got the tools to do it. We just know we have them. All we know is it's happening, and someone has made t-shirts that say intentional community. I don't know. So we get carried away. We tend to reinforce one another's worst demons. We're persuaded by rumor and by gossip to the point where we want the worst to be true of other people. Take a look at the tabloid industry. When we give in to the fever of the mob, we give in to the full power of the group. And all our beliefs and actions no longer become about seeking what's true or what's good or what's the will of God, but what's the will of the group, what's good for the group, what the group says is true. Our lives become about proving loyalty to the group. So we learn how to repeat the party line instead of thinking for ourselves. And of course, one of the best ways to prove our loyalty to the group is by kicking somebody else out of it. So we love a scapegoat. In the decade before the Civil War, Ralph Waldo Emerson complained of how predictable Americans had become according to where they lived. It was a problem of sectionalism, that people's beliefs and values about slavery were driven more by their region of origin and not as the result of any moral reasoning or independent thinking. He writes, it's not, is it not the chief disgrace in the world to be reckoned in the gross? to be reckoned in the gross, and our opinion predicted geographically as the North or the South. Not so, brothers and friends. Please, God, ours shall not be so. We will walk on our own feet. We will work with our own hands. We will speak our own minds. A nation of men will for the first time exist because each believes himself inspired by the divine soul who also inspires all people. The mob mentality reduces us from that great height of inspiration, of believing that each one of us is created in God's image and filled with the capacity to create. Mobs make us base, turning good people into vicious crowds who call for the death of an innocent person. People of faith, do not become less than you are and less than you were created to be by being reduced to a mob. Don't lose yourself in the crowd. Don't let anyone do your thinking for you. Now, before we close with Pilate, let's pull together the crowds and the religious leaders in their call for Barabbas. The Gospels tell us that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He is in prison for committing murder during an insurrection that took place in the city. There were many such insurrections, flashes of the people taking up the sword against their Roman oppressors, seeking to restore the ancient glory of their nation. When the chief priests and the elders convinced the crowds to call the name of Barabbas, they are holding up a notorious icon of nationalistic violence. And they're holding him up against Jesus, a notorious teacher of nonviolence. So we have the crowd giving in to its basest desire to be a riotous mass with dreams of violent revolution. And then we have the religious leadership using this dream to manipulate the people into doing what they want them to do. Because remember, as they've already, first, as they've already said to Pilate, They have no interest in violent revolution. They have no king but Caesar. They're appealing to the crowd's desire for power as part of a play to preserve their own power. 
It's two angles on the same temptation to worship human power, to gain power over the world. So with all of that, we finally reach the guy who actually does have all the power in the world. Pilate, who holds the kingdoms in his hand. The Gospels tell us that Pilate sees what's going on. He understands. He sees the rivalry. He sees the jealousy. He says he doesn't have any skin in the game either. In the case of the chief priests and the elders versus Jesus of Nazareth, this judge doesn't care. The Gospels say that Pilate doesn't buy the charges either, that he, in fact, judges, innocent, judges Jesus innocent, declares that he finds no basis for guilt in Jesus, no ground of the death sentence, and that he actually wants to release Jesus too. And despite all of this, against his own judgment of the evidence, Pilate comes to see this situation with that riotous crowd as one in which he, he, can do nothing. And he washes his hands of Jesus and hands him over to be crucified. How can this be? Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor. He is a politician. And the Gospels tell us an agonizing truth about human politics. It reveals the way our political systems so often define truth and power. Look at the way that Pilate defines power when Jesus won't answer him. Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? How is power being defined there? It's the power to take life, not to enact justice, not to protect the vulnerable. This is what governments are supposed to do, right? Restrain our worst behavior. But Pilate defines political power as the power to crucify, without reference to guilt and without reference to innocence, which is why he's got that incredible question, what is truth? According to his actions in this story, Pilate defines truth as the exercise of power, as he releases the guilty and condemns the innocent. Now, it was not malice or even impulse or even convenience that drove Pilate's decision here. It was, as with the case of the others, worship of human power. And this time in the form of fear. Talk about fearing God. That's part of our worship as people of faith. In this case, it's not fear of God, but fear of man. The Jewish leaders cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against Caesar, and we have no king but Caesar. It didn't have to be this way. Different choices could have been made. Jesus did not have to go to the cross. Justice could have been done. But then this wouldn't be a world in need of saving if justice had been done and if truth had been seen as truth. On this first Sunday in Lent, as we make our way to the cross, people of faith, I would invite you to see the cross from this perspective. That our Lord was crucified by a politician who gave in to a mob that was persuaded by religious leaders who sought power. 
Jesus says that for this purpose he was born and for this reason he came into the world to testify to the truth. The truth is what God reveals to us through Jesus who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? The truth is that Jesus bears our sin through all of this. He bears our jealousy and our hypocrisy, our violence, our false accusation. He bears our scapegoating, our mob mentality. He bears our denying of responsibility and corrupting of the truth and of justice. He endures it all to show us what we can become and to invite us into a better way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.